Hi, and welcome to Bread. John's Gospel features seven sayings of Jesus which begin with I am. And they serve a singular purpose, to emphatically reveal Jesus' identity as the Son of God. This is a series about these saints. They confront us with the real Jesus and they invite us to meet with him. Because the Christian faith is not primarily a doctrine to believe or a moral code to follow or even an experience to participate in. It is a person to meet. And our hope is that you would meet the living Jesus. Enjoy. This is the second in our uh, series on the I am statements of Jesus in John's Gospel. And I know that a lot of you know your Bibles very well, know all about this rich tapestry of genres and the context that they're written in and how we're to read them and how we're to treat each bit and its context differently. But I know that, you know, we've just heard from a couple of people who are new to this, who don't have a background in it. So I really enjoy at the start of any series, just making sure that we're completely on the same page around the context. So let's just very quickly do that for John's gospel now. Um, It is a distinct gospel. Um, It's different from the other three in a number of different ways. It was written in a time of increasing friction in the early church between Gentile believers and Jewish believers in a time when both camps were being persecuted newly and increasingly under the Roman Empire, probably between 90 and 100 AD. And as it accounts for itself, it's written by an eyewitness, so sometime later, so the sense of that we could have of somebody really ruminating on their experience, spending a whole lifetime ruminating on their experience of knowing Jesus, human Jesus who walked the earth. Its content is unique. Uh, 92% of what is in John's gospel um, isn't included elsewhere. It doesn't have any parables, for instance. Um, And only a fraction of Jesus' miracles are included. In fact, of the seven that John highlights, only two of them are recorded in other Gospels. Its structure is unique, and it takes a lot of artistic license on the chronology of Jesus' life and what he did. It's absolutely written in a context of Jesus' Jewishness. All of the things that we're going to look at, um, there you've got the series uh, uh, weeks up there, all of the things that we're going to look at are direct references to Old Testament events and prophecies. And uh, John connects his ministry to Jewish festivals um, in a timeline that, again, the other, it doesn't necessarily align up with what we know of the Jewish calendar and uh, the, the order in which other Gospels put things in. He was writing to a primarily Gentile audience, um, churches started by Paul in Asia Minor. The question of who John is isn't entirely uncontroversial, but most mainstream mainstream scholars agree that he's the same John who is referred to as Jesus' beloved disciple. He's known in Christendom as John the Evangelist or St. John the Divine. Uh, He likely wrote the other three letters of John in the New Testament and probably Revelation as well, although that, that one is slightly more disputed. John's gospel doesn't start like the other ones start. It doesn't start with anything about Jesus' lineage or his early ministry or his conception or his early childhood. It starts with this epic poem 
um, that echoes Genesis. And from there, it's woven very cleverly and very deliberately into two halves, known as the Book of Signs and the Book of Glories, and focuses throughout this on the evidence for Jesus being the Son of God through these seven I am statements. So just to look at the I am thing again, Ed spoke about this last week, but it is harking back to um, what God said in the burning bush to Moses. Moses asked him his name, and he says his name is I am who I am. Yahweh is the designator that is, is used, that he's known by, which effectively means the same thing as I am. Um, but his title to the Jewish people, you may well know, was considered to be too holy to be said out loud. So if it was, being, if it was in scripture that was being read out, they would simply skip over God's name. Such was the reverence for this name. Too holy. Too holy to be in the presence of and yet here Jesus is on the pages of John's gospel saying, I am right in front of you, outrageously, unquestioningly identifying himself as God. So there are seven I am statements, um, all pertaining, as I said, to Israel's uh, history and expected messianic future. There are seven signs. Um, like I said, seven miracles are included and John also includes seven titles of Jesus um, when he's first introducing him in chapter one. Seven being the number of perfection and completion. So John is sort of making the perfect claim, giving the perfect evidence for the completed work of God on the cross. That it diverges from the other gospels um, so dramatically has been used by critics to enforce the idea that all of this was made up by Jesus' disciples later, but it's almost like those critics haven't necessarily seen good storytelling before. Because John, as an eyewitness, crafts his account masterfully with an explicit purpose in mind that we can find at the end of the book in chapter 20. It says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John believes that the Jesus, you and Christians for the last 2,000 years, the Jesus that we can read about in this book is alive and can change our lives forever. You may have life in his name is not bios. It's not the Greek word for being alive, the sort of sense of having a heartbeat, an existence in a physical body. The word John uses throughout his gospel, um, when he says things like, in him is life, he is life, life that was the light of all mankind, the bread of life from today's reading. This is the word zoe, divine life, uniquely possessed by God, eternal, breathed into us by God the God of the universe, life that we are made for, full of love life, full of joy and energy and bounty and harmony, which definitely resonates with those words, doesn't it, from the prophetic words from this morning. Um, <clears throat> when I was uh, sitting down to write this talk this week, I had a moment of... Um, you know, standard self-loathing that most writers are very familiar with. It starts with this is terrible and it goes to everything is terrible and lands firmly with I am terrible. 
Um, and it is, just, it is just the process I have come to um, expect and accept it. Um, and I have also learnt some great coping mechanisms for this inevitable piece of writing anything. Um, <clears throat> I highly recommend a mindful meditation practice if you don't have one. Um, not just because of what the science says about sort of how it takes us out of one space of our brain and into another one, but also because in my experience, aside from incredible spirit-filled worship like we get to experience here on Sundays, we can't do that every day, can we? It's probably put a little bit too much pressure on the band. Um, this is the way that I find that I can just get out of that frantic frequency of my brain and get into the frequency of my brain where I'm most likely to hear the spirit. And it just is as simple as it sounds, if you don't do anything like this, of just breathing in for three and breathing out for three, keeping your focus on your breath and just coming back to your focus on your breath if it goes to anything else. It can be quite, I found some great, you know, just YouTube guided meditation for whatever it is, you're, but also that's hit and miss with some very strange things on YouTube, as we know. Um, but also just as simple as in with the Holy Spirit and out with this, you know, this gross stuff that my, my thoughts are full of at the minute. Um, and it, re it really, really does dramatically help. I promise you, if this is a, speaking to writers in the room, I know there's a few of us, um, highly recommend it. In this instant that I was sort of thinking, I actually don't really know, I've spent, I've got thousands of words on my page and I don't actually know what my talk is about. Um, a couple min minutes into this moment of meditation, I had a very clear and vivid picture of a beautiful butterfly in a glass frame or sort of box on a wall of somebody's bedroom. And I felt that this very clearly spoke to kind of what I'd had a sense of, of what this talk about, what this series is about, which is about how we can see Jesus in all of his, all of his beauty and all of his brilliance, but how it's not something to keep at one side and put on a wall and just have a sort of this very two-dimensional part of what we do. This is supposed to be this living, breathing thing. This person that we know I think it's very, very understandable for many of us if we have kind of inherited a Christian identity, either from parents or from just cultural church-going practice. And, we, and if we haven't had um, necessarily a tradition where the context of certain things are explained to us, it's entirely doable. I speak with experience that we can get to this stage in our lives and not have a relationship with Jesus that some people talk about. You know, there's people that like meet him. Ed's one of them. They just meet, meet, come to faith because they meet Jesus and they experience him and they see his face and they know it. If we haven't had that experience of this, if we're doing this because we kind of, this is who I am, this is, I, I go to church, this is what I'm supposed to do. I wonder if there are some of us who haven't ever, ever stopped to ask ourselves what Jesus' face towards us looks like to ask ourselves how he feels towards us when we're going through the things of this life. It's quite easy to just have these sort of, you know, these memory verses, these things that we've had from, from the, the life of Jesus that kind of they've, follow me, have more faith, why don't you understand what I'm saying? And it'd be the sense that we're, we're trying to come to that Jesus is kind of frustrated with us for not getting it at Jesus rather than this whole other person so what I would love to encourage you to do as we do this series is to ask Jesus for you, who are you? 
What does your face look like towards me? What does Zoe life mean for me? Have I met this person? Am I sure I know this person of Jesus? It sounds like such a rudimentary thing to ask you in a room full of Christians. Don't just listen to these sermons once a week. Meet Jesus again on the pages of John's Gospel. Wrestle with him to show himself to you. Let the Spirit testify to you about who he is. There are five weeks <clears throat> left of this ser uh, the sermon series. John is 21 chapters long, I think, 22. Um, that I, I, I googled this, it's 879 verses, which is an average of 25 verses a day. You could buy yourself this very readily available commentaries that could really help you with some of this stuff. I really recommend N.T. Wright's John for Everyone series. Um, but that is my challenge to all of you during this series that we continue with. And now Maddie is going to come and read from John 6, I am the bread of life. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they all had had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd found him on the other side of the lake. They asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. 
for on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Thanks, Maddie. I am, says Jesus throughout the gospel, the bread of life. This is probably as good a time as ever to tell you why this is called bread, this church. Um, aside from the obvious, you know, bread of life and communion and all the other bread references. Uh, we didn't have, when we were sort of um, coming here to start this, uh, we didn't have a name. And as you all know, one of the hardest things about starting anything is thinking of a name for it. Um, and all of the good Greek words for church and kingdom and everything else you can think of, they were already taken by existing churches. Um, and also, there is a sense that we do really hate to be predictable and expected. It's a little bit of a weakness that Ed and I have. But Culver City is where we knew we were going to plant, um, which is where we, we did plant this for the first kind of year and a half of Bread's life, and uh, until we kind of figured out the city and worked out where we belonged a bit more. And in Culver City, you may well know, is the Majestic Helms Bakery which is an incredible space that was founded by Paul Helm in the 1930s, whose mission was to bring daily bread uh, to your front door. And he expanded that over the next 30 years. It's an incredible thing to delivering bread to doorsteps between Fresno and San Diego in these little coach things. It did very, very well until the unfortunate advent of the supermarket. And then it closed down its doors forever. It, now the building is you know, high-end furniture and stuff. Um, I would also be lying, I mean, there was, there, was nice, there was nice meaning in that, and I would also be lying if I were uh, to say that it wasn't that we didn't actually really quite like the idea of naming ourselves after a delicious glutinous carbohydrate in the clean-eating capital of the world. Um, we call it bread, not bread church, um, but you can do whatever you want. You can call it bread church if you like. It's just wrong. Anyway, the day after Ed had sort of had this sense that this should be our name, I wasn't quite on, but it is a love it or hate it thing. We know loads of you hate it. Um, but we were meeting a friend for dinner um, who is very prophetic, and she said, apropos nothing, we didn't mention this at all, she said that the night before she'd had a dream about Ed as a baker in a large baker's kitchen churning out all of these loaves of bread. So there we go. Our, our name quest was over. A quick things about this bread multiplying miracle before we get into the I am statement that accompanies it. In ancient times, bread, which would have been much more like a pitta than a loaf, or a pita, as you say, um, was what most people survived on. 
meat and other vegetables wasn't something that people had or, or could afford very often. So um, because bread was so prominent, it became a kind of symbol for food itself. Um, interestingly, this miracle um, accompanying this I am statement of um, Jesus is the only one told in all four gospels apart from the resurrection. We're told that this crowd has been following Jesus because, verse 2, they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Um, so he's been followed by this healing, hungry, hungry crowd. And it says on ver in verse 3, he went up to a mountainside and sat down. So can we just stop and note this? Oh, ye busy people, ye worker bees, you go-go-goers. Note this, if you find it very hard to feel holy when you rest. Note this, if you feel very bad, if you're not giving people what they want of you, if you have a hard time keeping healthy boundaries, who kind of only know how to feel Christian when we're meeting everyone else's needs, stop and metabolize this truth. A crowd of people with their sick are following Jesus and he goes away and sits down with his friends. Just imagine that, how you'd feel if you'd walked a really, really long way with your sick relative to get healed. And then you see this healer guy, not healing people, just sitting there on the floor, having a chat with his friends. The crowd would have actually been much bigger than 5,000. They counted heads of households in these days. It says here there were 5,000 men, which means that unmarried men, women, and children were not counted at all. So it's probably more like 10, 15, 20,000, your average small stadium crowd, all hoping to see signs. And there's no sense here that they're doing that kind of churlishly. There's nothing to suggest that they were wrong to be chasing the miracle man. They have sick amongst them. They have very, very limited medical options. And this man is healing people. Of course they're following him. But if you want to see the subtext of John that he labors over and over and over again in this book, look what Jesus does over and over again. The number of times he goes off by himself to pray, even though he is full of the Spirit, in perfect relationship with his Father, the number of times he needs to withdraw to, re -alone, to be alone, to recharge. The number of times he is not dissuaded by the inevitable upset of people around him who want something else. It's something we look at in the boundaries course, but there's such a phenomenal difference between the idea of hurting people and harming people. Even if we're being our most Jesus-like, people can still be hurt by us. And um, for those of us that struggle with this side of sort of attachment disorders, it's something really, really important to meditate on in the life of Jesus, and it's all here throughout John. I've had to do a lot of work on this one as a church leader because I do so hate it when people are upset with me. And it turns out it is completely unavoidable. It is very Jesus-like to say no sometimes, to walk away from people in need sometimes, to take time alone and to recharge with friends, which is what he does over and over again. Okay. Moving on, Jesus sees the crowd who have stayed out, uh, you know, who are following him, and he sees that they're hungry because um, it's past dinner time. And they need something to eat. In Mark's version of this miracle, it says that Jesus looked on them and had compassion for them. 
But John wants us to be very clear that there is something much more important going on here than simply meeting the need. Telling us in verse 4, as he does, that it was um, Passover. Thank you. Um, is intended directly to point us, the readers, back to Exodus, the story of 1,500 years earlier um, when the people of Israel were led out of Egypt, um, led miraculously through the Red Sea and living in the desert under miraculous daily provision before they entered the Promised Land. This is what Passover was celebrating. And uh, we know what happens. Jesus performs this multiplication miracle from five barley loaves, um, barley being the cheapest grain, barley being something that actually most, in most, most regularly was used as animal feed. It, only very poor people ate barley. And probably two um, very small dried fish. And from this, everybody in this enormous crowd has um, everything they need to eat, as much as they need to eat, it says. The symbolism and the details of this provision would not be lost on the crowd. Two, the number of fish being the number of stone, the stone tablets at Sinai. Five, the number of loaves, like manna, being the number of books in the Torah. Bread was in fact a word used by rabbis in that day to sort of synonymous with law. Five loaves of bread is a very significant thing, as is 12, the number of leftover baskets being the number of the tribes of Israel. Wouldn't ever encourage you to take Hebrew numerology too far, but these are symbols and numbers that would have been known to those people, to a Jewish audience in that day. This sign is not just a display of Jesus' miraculous power, not remotely. Just like in the next bit of the story that Maddie read, um, Jesus walking on the water isn't just a sign of his power over the elements. That's a messianic reenacting of Jesus parting the Red Sea as they're on their way to the Promised Land. The feeding of the thousands in Galilee points to the miraculous feeding of um, the people in the desert with the manna. And for this crowd, this means one very important thing. Extra biblical texts from this era reveal a belief in these days of a sort of heavenly storehouse of manna that was the one that was opened um, 1,500 years ago in the wilderness and that would once again be reopened in the day that Messiah came he would provide their daily food needs in the exact same way he did them. This is a poor crowd of subsistence level people, so providing daily food actually alleviates huge amounts of their daily struggle. I think it's, it's, it's hard for most of us to relate to this. This provision was a sign, finally, that they are being rescued. They are being reinstated to greatness. Their second exodus has come. This is it. They knew what Jesus was showing them when he said, I am. He was the Messiah. And yet, in verse 15, it says they misunderstood. They wanted to make him this Messiah by force, and so Jesus retreats again. And then we'll skip forward a bit, because um, they pursue him to the other side of the water. And he essentially says, are you just here for this free bread? Or do you actually want to know what this means? He says, do not work for food that spoils. Verse 27, which is language again about the, referring them back to the manna wilderness thing. Because I'm sure you know that when God gave uh, the Israelites the manna in the desert, he told them not to gather up more than they needed for one day. That he, he, he wanted them to trust him to do it again. Um, don't hoard it up. Don't store it up because it will spoil. Jesus repeats this. And they go, okay, okay, so where's today's bread? Sir, give us always this bread, verse 34. 
And then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I am not a daily food source. I am the whole I am. I am the food you need, the water you thirst for. I am the manna from God's treasury for which you have been waiting. I am the fellowship with God. Another detail known to these people would be um, the way that Sabbath has been carried out throughout their history as a people since they were given the law. It says in Leviticus 24, I think we've got these verses, that on Sabbath, every Sabbath, um, that 12 delicious loaves of bread would be feasted on by temple priests on a table of pure gold, feasting being this symbol of rich fellowship with God. Jesus is there going, I am the feast. You are in God's presence now. I am the beginningless, transcendent God, infinitely exalted above the world and the universe upon which everything that has been depends. Life as Zoe, God breathed, full of purpose, full of joy, full of love. I am this. You get this from me. And I think what is a, a subtle thing that's important to note here is that it isn't that Jesus is saying he doesn't care about our bios life needs. He has, of course, just provided them with earthly bread. He knows that we have life needs, food, shelter, work. He knows the things that our life requires in order for us to thrive physically and in our minds and in our hearts. This is not an argument, uh, for, certainly an argument that others have made for the denial of all earthly bread. Like we're supposed to go out like aesthetics into the wilderness and wear hair shirts, which I never really understood, and eat locusts. Like whose hair? Uh, what Jesus is very clearly saying is that all of that, all of those things, some of them great and beautiful, some of them terrible for you, some of them value neutral, all of that though is food that spoils. They will not give you the sustenance you really need. Our yearning for earthly bread is entirely insatiable. Ask anyone who's made it to the top of any bread mountain, and we've read this in biographies over and over again of sort of, you know, famous, incredibly successful sports people and business people and, and other, you know, fame, wealthy, successful people. It's that there is no top of the mountain. It's like being promised a great banquet only to realize that the food is completely tasted. There's always more. Success actually in these ways tends to correlate entirely with more worry, doubt, and fear. There's always a bit more to need, and there is so, so much to lose. In C.S. Lewis' words from Mere Christianity, he says, most people, if they had really learned to look inside their own hearts, would know that they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. It's been 70 years since he wrote those words, and uh, since then we have 
continued to improve our quality of life across the board if we measure it in education, money time, leisure time, access to goods. And I absolutely know this is not something that there's a parity in. I know there are people in this room who definitely feel like they don't have everything that they need at the minute. And I know that living in Los Angeles screams at us about all the things that we should have, all the things that everyone else has, all the things that's going on for everyone else. I think it's very hard to maintain a sense of being well-fed in this town. It's a pastoral challenge that Ed and I take very, very seriously for living here. The point about quality of life is that across the board, we're improving in all of these things. But if you look at any metric of societal frequencies of worry, sadness, anger, these things have been steadily rising along with our quality of life since they've recorded records of these things. The quality of life is better, but we're experiencing more sadness, more worry, more anger than ever before. Because the quality of life in general, is food that spoils. The crowd misunderstanding what Jesus is saying here is a literary device that John uses throughout his gospel. Over and over and over, Jesus tells them, shows them who he is and what he's doing, but they don't hear him and they try and kind of bring their own agenda to it. They miss what he's saying. In fact, a bit later in this scene, we didn't read that far, in verse 66, it says that many of his followers turned away from him at this point after this I am statement. He's not doing what they wanted him to do and he's not promising what they absolutely demanded that a Messiah was gonna do, what they believed a Messiah was gonna do. And I really, truly believe it's something that we all need to ask ourselves often. How am I just like this crowd? How is my relationship with Jesus defined by the things on my agenda? My needs, my plans. I think it is worth just giving this a moment. What provision of the daily bread that you want is your relationship with Jesus depending on? None of us are pure in this. Jesus says, my being here is not about the provision of the things on your agenda. I am God, creator, wonderful counselor, mighty, unbreakable God, made breakable, arriving as a zygote, arriving utterly dependent on humans to care for him, as vulnerable as any baby walking among you as a human being with human feelings about the human experience of being alive. To show you another way of doing it, that as followers of Jesus, unavoidably involves being broken too. There's obvious symbol of communion here. Um, it felt fitting to do communion with a proper loaf of bread this week. So I've had this sitting here. We're going to eat some in a minute. But let's really try and sit with this for a moment. The invitation that Jesus makes to all of us is to die with him to our own agendas and live in him, to imbibe, to digest him. 
it's a, it's a thing that Jesus told us to do in remembrance of him, right? Taking communion together. But it is, it, it's such an important thing when we think about what food does, the way it goes through our body and nourishes us and kind of becomes a part of us. This is how it works with Jesus too. It's how it works with scripture too. It's a really brilliant book um, by, G, by Eugene Peterson called Eat This Book, um, based on the bit in uh, the beginning of Revelation where John of Patmos talks about um, an angel who tells him to eat a scroll. Jesus and following Jesus means he is part of us. He becomes part of us. We break the things that are on our agenda and in exchange for that, we give him the life, the fullness of life that only he, he can offer. The thing that doesn't spoil. And do we not want that? The sharing in the healing, the complete peace in the middle of a storm, joy even in suffering, being full of the spirit, being, having hope for the future, having grace for difficult people, the ability to forgive people, all the things that Jesus is, the ability to step out of the individualistic soup, the very lens that we see the world through in this culture. And like Nellie was prophesying, being part of this story that's so much bigger than we can even imagine. And to celebrate, this ability to celebrate abundance before we see it, like Shauna was saying. Made new every day. The ability to leave all the insecurity behind. I mean, those words just spoke so perfectly to this picture of it. And so what I want to do now, if the band want to come up, we're going to take communion um, really got my multiplication uh, I don't know how big chunk we can all take but I think there's a decent amount of bread we can have we're going to dip it in the real wine doing communion properly this time uh, there is non-alcoholic wine and gluten free wafers right there, sorry about that celiacs, I'm sorry for the discrimination against you today, I did not have time to find a gluten free loaf this morning when I decided to do this um, I apologise but would you stand now and come forward? You can come forward in your own time. Take a decent chunk of bread, which I'm going to break, and invite Jesus to reveal himself again to you now.